what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. One of the things that ritual brings you to is a sense of abiding by things that are larger than you and your opinions and your take on things. That we actually get to participate in something that is larger than us, is acknowledgement, is thanksgiving, and friendly to the world. That's Stephen Jenkinson. In some circles, he's known as the angel of death, but not in a harbinger of death kind of way, in a nice way. We'll come back to Stephen in a bit. But for now, I want to focus on his interpretation of that word, ritual. Take, for example, the ritual of Thanksgiving dinner. For some of us, this weekend may mean getting together in a way that has not been possible in ages. For Doc Project producer Kent Hoffman, the heart of the ritual of Thanksgiving dinner is encapsulated in one thing. Stuffing. Well, first of all, Easy, I should just say I, I just love stuffing. And I remember when I was a kid, like while my cousins were getting distracted by breaking the wishbone or whatever that was, I was strategically getting lined up to get the biggest scoop of stuffing possible without being told not to take too much. <laughs> To me, it's it's better than the actual turkey. But one, one thing I should mention is I often use the term stuffing and dressing interchangeably. I'm sorry, what? Dressing? Like it's vinaigrette for turkey? Well, well yeah, but okay, well, no. It, it, drives, <laughs> it drives my kids crazy when I ask them to pass the dressing because, because they look for the salad dressing. And Naturally. Apparently, it's related to whether or not it's cooked inside or outside the turkey. So, mm-hmm. so really, stuffing is the proper in-turkey term. Um, whatever you want to call it, the amount of stuffing, it's, it's limited, right? To create a lot of stuffing, you, you really need to cook it inside a turkey big enough to feed a large group of people. And, and that usually only happens at a holiday gathering like Thanksgiving, right? So the, the preparation of stuffing at Thanksgiving is a kind of ritual. It allows you to take something as ordinary as stale bread and by adding some seasonings and other ingredients and, you know, and cooking it inside a turkey, turn it into something wonderful. And, and those things are all part of, I think, what ritual is. You're, you put ordinary ingredients together to create something special. It's a way to make something better by including others. And finally, I think the most meaningful rituals come from inside. <laughs> so... The Thanksgiving ritual for me, it's really about the ritual of thanks, giving, the the small t, right? The ritual of giving thanks, an expression of gratitude. Or this year, I think an expression of, we made it this far, now what? I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, rituals. As we face another holiday in a pandemic world. This time, Thanksgiving, we're at, what, 19 months now? Of having to put off or cancel or even worse, Zoom, those rituals that used to be the metronome of our lives. Kent has been thinking a lot about rituals lately. It all started from a place of losing them. I was actually there the moment they started to slip away for Kent. You might have had a moment like it in your own life. Well, I was sitting in the the Doc Project office and, and we were having a meeting. There was about four of us. I think I think you may have even been there. Yeah. And somebody came in who was going to be working with us for a while. And the door opened and I just turned around and without thinking, I shook the person's hand, right? Uh, well, this was when yeah. all the concern about the pandemic was just starting. Like this was probably two, three weeks before the lockdown. And everybody was, was very nervous about it. And everybody in the office just kind of gasped, right? And I was like, and then I realized sort of what I'd done. And, I, and I, so I just kind of reached for the hand sanitizer and rubbed it on my hands. And I realized like at that moment, it's like the ritual of the handshake was gone. And I literally haven't shaken hands with anyone since. Mm, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, and you think, and it's such a, it's a tiny ritual, but it's one that we do a lot. And when you take those things away, you have to reinvent them again. You have to find another way to do that. And that's sort of what this was about, was trying to find a way to reinvent rituals. 
I mean, before that moment, before the handshake, and before your ritual obsession started, what did you even think of rituals? Well, you know, it, it was funny because I didn't really even think of them as rituals. It was sort of like these ceremonies that you would just take part of that were milestones or, you know, could be weddings or, you know, or even something sad like a funeral. And just the idea that you go through these sort of series of steps to mark something. And I think when the pandemic hit and a lot of those things were canceled, I suddenly realized that those things were taken away and I realized how much they meant to me. I felt the loss of those things and I was surprised by that. And I decided to actually explore, you know, what is a ritual and what does it mean? And how, once they're gone, do you get them back? All right, Kent Hoffman will take it from here. Formally, a ritual is defined as a solemn or religious ceremony consisting of a series of actions performed in a prescribed order or in the same way. But that definition doesn't really begin to cover all the reasons we take part in rituals and ceremonies. We sometimes don't even refer to them as rituals because the word itself can seem daunting. You mention ritual and some people look at you like you're about to sacrifice a goat. To me, a ritual is any ceremonial act that I take part in and draw meaning from. Rituals offer a sense of control, or at least create the illusion of it during times of uncertainty. In that way, rituals can help us cope with losses. They can mark milestones or help you through transitions by defining beginnings and ends. During the pandemic, a lot of familiar rituals and ceremonies were shaken to the core or lost altogether. When they were taken away, I realized just how much I took them for granted. Normally, rituals are something I would naturally turn to for comfort during difficult times. There have been more than a few of those lately. This has been a very hard year for a lot of people. For everybody, really. And for me, it's been one of the most difficult years of my life. What I've learned is that all the difficulties of life still continue to happen during a worldwide plague. So while the absence of rituals might not be on the top of anyone's list of pandemic losses, for me, it's a loss I've felt deeply. In the very early days of the pandemic, I got a Facebook message from an old school friend. It wasn't good news. Bob, one of our close friends from college, was very, very sick. Bob was just my age and I was shaken to think that he was dealing with a serious illness. Bob and I were close in college. We learned broadcasting together, hung out together, and partied together. No one made me laugh like Bob. Stop it! Stop it! The whole thing! Just stop it! It's silly! Extremely silly! This is very silly indeed! Now all of you, off! God, I found this old videotape. It must have been 30 years since I've last seen it. It's from our college days in broadcasting, and we're doing a Monty Python tribute sketch, and, and Bob's playing one of the roles, and he's in a complete military uniform. A lot of people enjoy a good laugh more than I do. A lot of it's ridiculous and silly, but it's so great to see Bob again, and he, he's exactly as I remember. So, I'm here to straighten things out. On my cue, you cut. Wait for it. Following college and working in different cities along with the shift work of broadcasting, we saw less and less of each other. Our friendship kind of just slipped away. Eventually, Bob moved to Ohio and we lost touch. I always imagined that someday we'd get together again. But often some days don't happen. Once he moved away, I never saw him again. Three days later, I received an update from my friend. Bob had died. Bob's death hit me hard. It was tough to accept that he was gone. I was full of regret over the loss of that friendship. Then the lockdown started. A planned memorial service couldn't happen. Other than a few Facebook messages, I mostly had to deal with that loss alone. The news of the pandemic was grim. I started working at home and never went back. Then everything seemed to go wrong. In the midst of the lockdown, my wife was facing cancer and dealing with the many treatments that would help her recover. 
as the year progressed, there was more family illness. Other friends and family members died. The personal losses felt relentless and non-stop. I, I started to feel crushed. I started to feel like I couldn't cope. But stuck at home, I found myself thinking about all the things we couldn't do. All the things I would usually turn to for comfort that were now off-limits, even dangerous. My kids' graduation ceremonies, my son from university, and my daughter from high school were cancelled. These were once-in-a-lifetime milestones I'd imagined for as long as I'd been a parent, and they wouldn't be rescheduled. I was looking for answers and some comfort. I thought maybe it would be helpful to find someone who could help me bring back those ritual aspects of life again. But who would that even be? Surprisingly, it didn't take me long to find the right person. Someone who would get what I was looking for. So my name is Megan Sheldon and I'm the co-creator of Be Ceremonial, uh, an app that helps people create ceremonies in connection with beginning of life and end of life experiences. I had no idea there was anyone in Canada, or anywhere else really, that was doing work like this. I knew she was someone I wanted to talk to. To start off, I asked Megan how she would define ritual. A ritual is an action with intention that creates meaning. So rather than simply doing something the way we would normally do it, we add an intentional kind of value to it so that when we do that action, we are um, infusing meaning into the experience. Megan emphasizes that it's that intentional aspect that gives the rituals their meaning. So for me, a ceremony is a container that holds a series of rituals. So a ceremony is a way to kind of move through a time of change or a moment of transition in our lives. And rituals are those intentional actions along the way. So you're forming a story in a sense. And if we move through those times of change using ritual, they become an expression of our love or our grief or our frustration, all the emotions that kind of stir in us. We can use ritual to acknowledge those emotions um, and create something from that. That sounds exactly like what I need. But I was still struggling with how to find that during a time of uncertainty like this pandemic, with so many rituals and ceremonies altered drastically or cancelled entirely. But Megan saw it in a different way. We really need to flex that ritual muscle on a day-to-day -day basis. So how we wake up in the morning, how we go to sleep at night, how we acknowledge the changing of the seasons. And really, none of that has been taken away from us. I think that we, you know, the intention is still there. We just have to adapt the medium. So a very good example is this last year and a half, I have hosted dozens of end of life celebrations, um, you know, virtual memorials, virtual celebrations of life, and the rituals aren't that different. And if we think about how we can connect across the screen, what we thought was ritual may have seemed to have been taken away from us. but. I do think that if you are gathering people with intention and looking at creating meaning through the way that you're gathering, whether it's physical or virtual, um, those same rituals can just be adapted to that new setting and still hold their, their reverence. With so many in-person events canceled, I've had to accept that one of the biggest changes to rituals is that many of them have moved online. You're going to try singing? You can take the lead. I've attended Zoom birthday parties, online church services, live stream concerts, book launches and talks. I've enjoyed these events but sometimes feel a bit disconnected from the people taking part. I mean, it's hard to make a deep connection with someone when every discussion starts with, you're muted. I've also tried to find new rituals. I started taking a regular walk in my neighborhood park on the shore of Lake Ontario. I start my walk in the path beside the leash-free dog park. Then the path turns to give you a beautiful view of the lake. Even though I often go for these walks alone, it's easy to feel connected to the world when you're watching dogs run freely while looking out at one of the great lakes. But at the same time, how much meaning can you infuse into a short walk? 
After a few months of these daily strolls, I came across a satirical article in McSweeney's called, I'm a short afternoon walk and you're putting way too much pressure on me, which is not incorrect. Putting these kind of ritualistic demands on a quiet stroll is no walk in the park, and I'm not sure how to deal with some of the awkwardness that comes with trying to create a meaningful ritual out of something as ordinary as a daily walk. But Megan helps me see the beauty of that simplicity. A ritual can be as simple as holding a moment of silence. If you do that with intention, like it, for anyone who thinks that you know, creating a ritual or, you know, building a ceremony feels like too much. I urge people to start simple and it should be focused on how you want to feel. How do you want to feel coming out of this or being in that moment? And I think that's a really good place for us all to start. I'm all for keeping things simple, but if a ritual is too simple, isn't it just a habit? I put this question to Megan. One example that I use as a very simple way to start is making your morning coffee. You know, I make my, my morning coffee the same way every day. Is that a ritual? And I think, no, that's a routine. So for me, a routine is something that you fall into. You fall into your everyday routines. A ritual is something that you step into. So you're intentionally doing something. So you can make your morning coffee the same way you always do, and that's your routine. But if you shift your thinking a little bit, and every time that you make your morning coffee, you pour your beans out in a certain way, and you, you think about you know, maybe the way that your, your father made coffee growing up, and you take a moment to acknowledge and remember him. Or if you, uh, as your beans are kind of brewing and you take your first sip of coffee, um, you acknowledge that, you know, today is going to be an overwhelming day. I just want this moment to feel grounded. And my ritual now is a grounding moment. And you take that first sip with the intention in your mind that this is going to ground you and this is going to calm your nervous system. Suddenly that simple idea of making and having your morning coffee steps into the realm of ritual because you're bringing that emotional kind of experience into it. So I decided to give it a try hoping to build a morning ritual with another part of breakfast. Okay, so now that the water is really boiling here, I'm gonna put this timer on for three minutes. And I'm gonna come over here now, put in my toast. Often for breakfast, I'll have a soft boiled egg with strips of buttered toast. We call it eggs with soldiers. I have a very precise recipe, well, more of a routine that I follow. You have to get the consistency of the yolk just right or it's ruined. You can't dip your toast soldiers in a hard yolk. But my focus this time is to try and take Megan's advice and add the ingredient of intention to turn it into a ritual. At first, it still feels like I'm just following the recipe. But then I remembered being a kid and the elaborate breakfast my dad used to make for himself while he was getting ready for work in the morning, while the rest of us were still waking up. I can totally picture it all laid out carefully on the kitchen counter. It included things like half a cantaloupe, toast, canned tomatoes, and always a soft-boiled egg. While he never referred to it as such, it was clearly more than just breakfast for him. It was a meaningful start-of-the-day ritual. Egg is ready. Out of the water quickly, egg cup. And that is breakfast. Megan is starting to convince me that bringing this kind of deliberate thoughtfulness to my daily routine can turn it into a ritual. Oh, definitely. A beautiful one that a friend of mine told me was every morning she wakes up and as her right foot touches the ground, she says out loud, thank. And as her left foot touches the ground, she says, you. So every morning, very simply, she gets out of bed and says, thank you. She turns that very simple act of getting out of bed every morning into a ritual. And I think that the more we think of rituals as being small little intentional actions that we can weave into our day, we flex those little muscles so that you actually now have those muscles in place. I like the idea of having those muscles in place, and I'm open to the idea of creating my own rituals. Making a meaningful ritual out of cooking a soft-boiled egg feels manageable. But what happens during those times when it doesn't feel manageable? You know, during a time like this, I, 
I don't think I had the energy to kind of create new rituals, even though I knew deep down they would help me. So I, I guess, how do we make that a priority when we're, you know, when we're feeling a bit crushed, when we, when we feel like we, we almost don't have the energy to do them? Like, how do we still make them a priority? I think that's a really good point. And I think this year, there were so many types of grief that we all experienced. It felt like, especially in those early days of the pandemic, everything just felt so big and unknown. What I do think when in, in terms of your question is, for me at least, the pandemic really revealed how much we need each other, how much we need community. Um, and so I think that being vulnerable with others and saying, I don't know what to do now, but I feel like I need something is one of the most powerful things that we can do. Asking for help seems obvious, but it's something we often resist, especially when we're asking for advice on how to cope. Megan's answer also makes me wonder what drew her to rituals in the first place. When it really showed up, when I had this crying deep urge within myself to, to really create ritual, um, was in and around fertility. And I was, my husband and I were married and we were trying to start a family and we got pregnant and had got very excited and very attached to this new being that was forming inside of me. And then I had a miscarriage and I went to the hospital and was, you know, treated like a, a number. And it's a very clinical medical process with very little openings for that spiritual or emotional wellness piece that I think is desperately needed. You know, I won't get into too much of it, but it was a very traumatic experience. I, you know, I was basically left to feel like this didn't matter, that physically I was fine. So I was sent out the door and, and I went back home to an empty apartment and I had no idea how to grieve that type of loss. I had no idea how to, to tell my husband or my parents or my community. With no ritual to turn to, Megan created her own. And so I found myself walking down to the ocean. I lived about four blocks away and I sat down at the beach um, for what seemed like forever. Um, and I found a marker in my purse and I brought out this rock and I wrote a message to the baby um, that I had lost. And I sat with that for a long time. And then I took the rock and I just threw it as far as I could into the ocean. And with that simple kind of acknowledgement, that simple piece of saying, I see you, I feel you, you were a part of me, um, I had what some would describe as a cathartic experience. I, I found this small little ritual that I had done. It was the first time you know, I, I'd written a name that I had in mind for the baby and I ended up writing a few different words on different rocks and each time I threw them out I had this, this feeling of okay, I'm, I'm doing something, I'm having that intentional action, I'm creating meaning, I'm processing my grief. So for me, that kind of simple ritual became, it was a doorway in a sense. Hearing Megan's story felt like a doorway for me too, because there's a word that keeps coming up here, grief. I started to realize just how much all of this was connected to grief. I wasn't just trying to find rituals, I was trying to find a way to really face all those losses. Like when my friend Bob died and his memorial service was cancelled. I felt like I lost a friend along with a tangible way to grieve for him. The ceremonies and rituals I was seeking out were actually grief rituals. Um, I've heard it said by a dear friend of mine, Tracy Chalmers, she's an end-of-life doula, she said that suffering is when grief goes unacknowledged. And for me, a ritual is the ultimate way to acknowledge something. It's, it's a, a way of coming together, you know, on your own or with your community to pay attention and create that intention. So when we think about grief, grief is something that we carry with us at all times. It's a reflection of our love. Just because you're grieving doesn't mean you can't have gratitude and joy and anger and, you know, you can hold these multiple emotions at the very same time. I think that's a big part of ritual for me is holding those multiple truths in the same moment. I'm kind of springing this on you, but and you've just described some, some beautiful rituals now, but I wonder if you could help guide me through a small ritual that I might be able to add to my life. Hmm. 
Yeah, so I've got this beautiful ritual box that a neighbor of mine painted for me. It's got a heron on it. And in it are all my little kind of different ritual tools. And I've got like a little spritz spray in here. That's like a lemon spray. And I'll often just spray it before meeting and take three breaths. I, I have some anxiety and I'm always kind of rushing. So that just kind of calms my, my system down. So that's a great one. Just seeing this ritual toolbox had a calming effect on me. Megan sprayed the lemon spritz in the air. Even though we were meeting online and she was on the other side of the country, I immediately felt my anxiety lifting. It was almost magical. It was like the way I felt when I saw Mr. Dressup's tickle trunk when I was a kid, or what a homeowner might feel like when Mike Holmes shows up to fix their nightmare reno. She brought out another tool. I have my two-sided coin, so it says grief on one side and gratitude on the other. I didn't have any grief-gratitude coins laying around, but I didn't want to interrupt, so I just grabbed a pen that was sitting on my desk. So for right now, what I invite you to do is to take your left hand and kind of close your eyes and imagine holding your grief in your left hand and just sit with it for a moment and feel, feel it. How does it weigh? Is it heavy? Do you find your arm kind of falling down, or is it light? I closed my eyes. I was gripping the pen tight. It weighed a ton, and I wanted to crush it. Hold your fists together and imagine all the grief that you've been feeling recently, and give it a color. Is there something that's showing up for you as you picture your grief in that left hand? And just take a moment to sit with that. And don't fight it. Just let it fall. What I imagined was not so much color, but a darkness. Images of grief. I saw people and places. I wanted to surrender to it, but it almost became too much for me. I had to remind myself that I was holding a pen. And then I invite you to flip over your coin and can shake out your left hand if you want. I always like to do that just to kind of reset. As I was shaking out my left hand, I experienced a lightness that I hadn't felt in ages. I was astounded that something this simple could affect me this much. And then in your right hand, you're going to hold your gratitude. And you're just gonna think about maybe one thing or several things that you're grateful for right now. And picture that gratitude in your right hand. And again, how does it feel? Is it heavy? Is it light? How does it feel in connection to that grief in your left hand? And picture that gratitude and what it makes you feel and how it's showing up in your world. Is there a color that you associate with it or a sound? And just spend a moment with that gratitude in your right hand and just let it sit. This time there was no color, no darkness or light, just images. Some of the same people in a different context. There was the sound of laughter. And then finally I bring my hands together and I hold my grief and my gratitude together in a state of grace. And it's this idea of just allowing yourself to hold both of those things in the same breath, not having to feel one more than the other allowing them both space in your day-to-day -day life, not having any rules to follow, but letting them coexist. When I opened my eyes, my hands were held together like I was about to pray. Megan and I had never met before, but there was no awkwardness to any of this. It was profoundly moving. But it also made me realize that in my search for ritual, I had skipped a step and not really considered grief. Megan was starting to help me see that connection between grief and gratitude and ritual. They all seemed to go hand in hand. I don't think you can really understand gratitude until you really understand grief. But I wanted to delve into this more and I knew exactly who I wanted to speak to. Thank you.
AC here. Coming up, Kent tracks down his own personal Yoda, Stephen Jenkinson. We'll be right back. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. If there's anyone I would describe as an expert on both grief and ritual, it's Stephen Jenkinson, though I have a feeling he might hate being defined as any sort of expert. He's the author of many books, including Die Wise and A Generation's Worth. I first learned about Stephen in a 2008 National Film Board documentary called Grief Walker. The crucible of making human beings is death. Every culture worth a damn knows that. That film was a portrayal of his work with dying people, and it had a profound impact on me. Our professional paths crossed over a decade ago when I was producing a radio series about fear. I invited Stephen to join the host of that program for a discussion about the fear of death. When you know that dying is, um, is on your horizon, it gives you a chance for the first time to love something as if it's not going to last. Another word for that would be grief. Grief is the perfect, almost a divinely wrought antidote to fear. In my work, I produce a lot of interviews, so many that I can barely remember some of them. But that interview with Stephen had a lasting impact and stayed with me. I remember thinking at the time just how much I wanted to have my own conversation with Stephen. I held on to that hope like some kind of existential get-out-of-jail-free card, and now felt like the right time to use that card. Shortly after I put in a request to interview him, I noticed he was hosting an online Q&A. I decided to sign up for the event and submitted a question. The gist of it was this. After over a year of being in this situation with the pandemic, how do we grieve the many losses we've experienced, from the loss of significant events to the everyday losses? Stephen answered lots of questions that day. I waited for mine, but it seemed like he wasn't going to have time for it. But just as he was wrapping up, Stephen considered my question. His answer floored me. Well, okay. The first thing that occurs to me is to say the ability to grieve is not one of the losses that's been prompted by the pandemic. There. That assumption is in the question, but I'm suggesting that that's not the case either. The capacity to grieve was in no way widely uh, practiced, widely understood widely debated, advocated, nothing of the kind. There's, there's no less ability to grieve now than there was. So, I mean, I'm not in any way um, faulting the question here. You know, it's Kent, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really well labored over. And the labor is showing the cracks and fissures of the assumptions that the culture wants you to drag around. The question was labored over. I thought about it for ages. The pandemic seemed like such an insurmountable obstacle. It hadn't even occurred to me that it might not be getting in the way of my grief. Rather, I never really knew how to grieve in the first place. And now, in the face of so much loss, those cracks were showing. It wasn't the answer I wanted to hear. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Stephen in the first place is that he doesn't provide easy answers. But yet, a part of me was still hoping for one. All that's happened, it seems to me, is we have a pandemic to blame for our grief illiteracy. And part of your grief, you want to include 
the sense of outrage because the measures that have been taken exclude you from an in-person event. Mm -hmm. I understand. And now we're fixated on the public health regime that quote unquote isolates us from our grief. That's not what it's doing. It's reminding us that when the coast was clear, we weren't really doing it then. And this is the realization we have now. That's where your grief could begin. So disassociate it from the spectacle of the pandemic and reacquire your ability to grieve as a basic requirement of being a human being in a troubled time. I was so focused on what had been taken away during the pandemic that I stopped thinking about how to grieve. All I let myself see was a pandemic that was getting in the way of everything. Hi, Stephen. There we are. I'm. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear. Excellent. Just a few days later, I got an email that Stephen would be available for an interview. You probably wouldn't remember as I was doing a CBC radio series called Fear Itself. Oh, sure, I remember. I, I just had so many more questions for him. But we began where I started my quest with the practice of rituals. Most people in my hearing employ the word ritual as if it were a, a naturally occurring, inevitably occurring, spontaneous and requiring of absolutely no tutelage, no tuition, uh, no prior experience. We just, as if we're just ritualizers uh, waiting to unfold. And uh, I'm suggesting by saying grief illiteracy that uh, grief has to be learned uh, in order to be practiced. Uh, and so I I'd, would hold up the idea of ritual as something to aspire to rather than thinking of it as a can opener that suits your purposes and then you can, in an inelegant way, ignore it for weeks, months, or years until the need arises and have recourse to it yet again. It made me feel better to think of rituals as something to aspire to. This whole time I was just expecting them to be there, like that can opener in the kitchen drawer that Stephen just described but I still found myself being pulled back to wondering how this could still happen when so many of our usual grief rituals, like funerals, have been cancelled. It doesn't seem to me that the safety measures that the plague has prompted are really in any way a serious compromise to, as you characterize it, our usual grief rituals. I don't think that there was much in the way of usual grief rituals. I mean, people know how to behave, and it's uh, basically a wild oscillation between a kind of stultifying solemnity on the one side and some kind of drunken outrage, perhaps, on the other side. And I'm not sure, you know, what else there is uh, in the repertoire. Sometimes I've viewed healthy grieving as just showing up. But learning how to grieve is about more than just attending a funeral. It also requires a nuanced sense of the meaning of these rituals. We could imagine ritual as a necessity that we don't seem to need. By that I mean one of the things that ritual brings you to is a sense of obedience, a sense of abiding by things that are larger than you and your opinions and your take on things, that we actually get to participate in something that is, for a change, larger than us, and friendly to the world. It was a shift for me not to see rituals as a way to express ourselves, but rather as something that is bigger than us. But yet, I still find myself lamenting the loss of some of the familiar and traditional rituals that ended up being cancelled. I'm almost grieving the loss of those events. One of the things I've been considering is that, you know, there's many sort of milestone events that we take part in that are you know, to me, are ritual events. And, you know, a good example for me is one of the rituals I didn't get to take part in this year was my, my children's graduation ceremony. Mm -hmm. My my daughter from high school and my son from university. Right. And is there a kind of grief, I guess, and I'm asking, is like, how do we deal with the loss of these milestone rituals like that that, that are never going to come back? Mm -hmm. Well, 
you know, I'm, I'm not a good guy to ask about how do you deal with something. And the reason for that is because I don't buy the idea that you're supposed to be somehow okay with it. That you're supposed to be able to get on the other side of the massive disappointment and dislocation of your expectations and all the rest. I mean, if that's our program, just to be okay all the time, I ask you what purpose real necessity grief has. So then I would say, you're right, those times are not coming back. Uh, you'll find that the immense part of your life can proceed without having attended them. And there's something grievous in that, to realize that most of your life didn't require your participation in those things to continue. A portion of it did, but the lion's share did not. And so what does it mean to have been you know, deeply disappointed by having your choices interrupted by, in this case, a pandemic? And that's what the rest of your life is given to you to do, is to make meaning out of fundamental dislocations, fundamental disappointments, and ruptures. It doesn't mean that you have to be okay with it. It means that you give it its proper place. So what do you do? You answer the question, what do you do by living? That's what life is for, is to craft meaning from circumstances that defy you to do so. So it's not really about getting over something. It's about finding meaning in those disappointments. This seems to be where grief and ritual connect. What role do you think ritual plays in, in grief? It's the, it's the enactment. It's the annunciation. It gives grief a conceptual vocabulary, a range of aesthetic uh, incarnation, and um, a kind of choreography so that you're not left to hatch out your own take on what grief is. The, the beautiful thing about where ritual meets grief is that we become grief-enabled simply by going through, if you will, the motions. Now, that might sound really disingenuous given other things I've said here, but the beautiful thing about ritual, cobbled together as it might be, is it gives you the beginnings of how to start without your heart being in it first. When it comes to call, you're well-advised to open the door, no matter how inconvenient the moment might be. There is a tendency to close the door to grief, because it almost always comes at an inconvenient time. So how can we manage to find our way to rituals in the midst of unpleasant, even tragic, circumstances? Apropos of your question about can ritual be affirming, even in tragedy, affirming, even in sorrow and loss, affirming. Unconditionally, the answer is yes with enormous labor on our part, born of the following. If you're willing to glimpse the limitations that you're entrusted with as a human being, the physical ones, the metaphysical ones, and if you're willing to live your life informed by that realization, then grief abounds, there's no question. But with the abounding grief comes an unsuspected capacity for gratitude. This is an extraordinary, very counterintuitive realization that grief is the midwife of your capacity to love being alive. And ritual can hand that back to you as something you can actually act on instead of just think about. I really do want to act on this and make that connection between grief and gratitude for myself. I had time for one last question. It was more of a plea, really. You know, if grief is something to be learned, where, you know, where do I start? Well, you start with an open-faced acknowledgement and recognition that you don't know how to start. You begin as a beginner. And so believe it or not, this, this is going to sound perhaps unexpectedly simple. The beginning of grieving when you're inexperienced with grief turns out to be grief unsuspected. That means you're actually grieving over 
your inability to grieve or your deep unfamiliarity with it. And you've begun without even realizing it. You've begun in its absence instead of its presence. And in so doing, you've called grief into the room almost involuntarily, almost unconsciously. And it does come. And your sense of crippling self-consciousness or things of that kind is something that you can actively lament over. And that act of lament is the grief that you're after, or at least its beginnings, its rudiments. Before I talk with Megan and Stephen, I seemed to be stuck. I didn't know where to start, so I didn't do anything. What I know now is that grief is not about moving past something. It's about beginning. Jeff? <laughs> you doing? Not too bad. How are you? Jeez, uh, I don't know where to start. Hello. Joe? Oh, my God. How you guys been? Good. Good to see you both. Yeah. Good yeah. to see you both. It's been too long. I hadn't really stopped thinking about Bob, my friend from college who died last year. I got in touch with Jeff and Joe. They were good friends from those days and were also close to Bob. We still couldn't really meet up in person, but I thought it was time for us to finally get together again. I hadn't seen them in ages, but we soon picked up where we left off. I had something I wanted to tell them. I've been thinking a lot about this past year. It's been, you know, a hard year for everybody. And when I think about the pandemic, that one of the first losses was, was hearing about Bob. And I mean, I, you know, we didn't actually get to get together or do anything for Bob because of the lockdown, right? I mean, the lockdown seemed to start like two weeks later. And then it was just, you know, we were kind of all in the flurry of that. I want to read you guys something I wrote, and I'm not really good at this sort of thing, so I'm just going to stick to the script here and and uh, read this to you both. So, so this is a toast to our friend Bob. We went to college with Bob, and together we became broadcasters. Not a week goes by when I don't think about those years. Bob was just larger than life. Apparently, Bob's family called him the Entertainment. Back in the day, Bob even managed to give his car a personality. What, what was that, a 1980s Chrysler LeBaron, I believe? I, I can't even remember, but it definitely had a personality. You know, I can't count the number of times that Bob made us all laugh. In his obituary, it said that when someone asked Bob what sign he was born under, he would answer, for rent. Now, that's, that's like a terrible joke, but it's also a great joke. And in my mind, I can totally hear Bob saying it. And it makes me miss him. Along with those laughs, Bob was also a person of great depth. And I think we're lucky to have shared those formative years together before we all headed off to make a life for ourselves. But over the years, I lost touch with Bob. I always imagined that someday we'd renew our friendship and, and get caught up, but it, it just didn't happen. And when Bob died, I found myself not only grieving his loss, but grieving the loss of that friendship. You know, I regret that I let it slip away. So I think the best way for us to grieve Bob is to make sure we don't let our friendship slip away as well. Life has taken us in different directions, but we still share the bond of those years. And we can continue to remember Bob by remembering each other and staying in touch. Bob probably wouldn't like me twisting his joke like this, but I think the sign we're all actually born under is exit. And we never really know when we'll be making our exit from the world. I'm really sorry that Bob's exit came so soon. So let's raise our glasses to Bob. To Bob. Yeah, you know, Kent, that was very well said. I think um, yeah. Bob was a really funny guy. And there's not a day that goes by where... I don't think of Bobisms uh, like uh, where you would say, uh, holy jumping or, <laughs> or just little things. And after I said a few words about Bob, we took some time together to remember the little things, the big things, and all the things we missed about Bob. He was always there for me when I needed to talk about something. He would just have great advice and make you uh, just feel that everything was going to be okay. You were talking about him being the entertainer. The one thing I still remember, it's like it was yesterday, 
I'm reading a newscast and Bob came up to the mirror and tried to make me laugh. Didn't matter what you did, what you were doing, he could make it fun. And part of it was just that he was Bob. But all he did was just stand there and look at me and <laughs> that grin and I lost it. And then he, you know, he was like, yes, he was victorious. The one thing about Bob too is he made people around him better. I miss him every day. I miss him every hour. I don't know if grief entered the room that day or if we were really serving ritual by sharing a toast. But I was acting on my grief instead of just thinking about it. I was beginning as a beginner. Thanks to you both. Well, thank you so much for asking me. Thanks. We all kind of needed that, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. On my cue, you cut. Wait for it. That Doc was produced by Kent Hoffman. It was edited by me, A.C. Rowe. Special thanks to Jeff Hicks and Joe Pavia. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Bob Rogers. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Sherry O'KK, Allison Cook, Tanera McLean, Joan Weber, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And this week, we are saying farewell to our beloved executive producer, Joan Melanson, who, after 44 years at CBC as a host, journalist, and doc maker, is retiring. Congratulations, Joan. I will see you on the golf course. I don't golf. Actually, I don't think you golf either. We'll figure it out. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.